Testing, testing, testing. This is Something in Media, a show that tells the story of successful people in the general world of media and what it takes to make it to the very top. In this episode, how Chris Skull went from following a curiosity at university to becoming the co-creator and presenter of one of the world's most popular podcasts, and then went on to create a podcast technology platform of his own. The purest reason you can do things, and I think this is the reason that I do things, is that I've got this cool idea in my head, I think it's fun and I'd like to do it, and maybe it'll go somewhere, maybe it won't. And that's the way I've I've approached every kind of creative endeavour I've had. It hasn't necessarily always been about turning it into, into a financial gain, it's been about i think this could be really fun and i'd like to do it chris is the epitome of curiosity and it's obvious from chatting to him that following his instinct with an open mind has served him well during his career and continues to do so in life we'll hear that it never hurts to ask the question those who don't ask don't get and that pursuing a project for enjoyment is the most important thing As a young man, Chris cut his teeth teaching himself how to code smartphone applications, which, as we'll hear, led him to actually get noticed and eventually he got paid for his efforts. From there, he caught the radio bug at university, which would set him up nicely as one of the UK's foremost podcast creators and media entrepreneurs. His road to success was an incremental one. Chris concentrated on doing what he loved rather than chasing the money. Today, Chris Skull is the co-creator and owner of one of the world's best and funniest, in my opinion, 90s-based football podcasts called Quickly Kevin, Will He Score? Plus, he is the CEO of Another Slice, the name of his technology company that allows you to search, sample and download a host of content from your favourite creators. You can also find Chris pitchside at most West Ham United home games at the London Stadium, microphone in hand, comparing the half-time entertainment. And it's in East London where Chris's journey really begins. Tell me about like where you grew up and you know what your family house was like. What was it like? Because it was East London, am I right? Yeah, East London. I actually grew up in uh, Clay Hall, which is near Ilford. And uh, I had a brother and sister. My mum sadly died when I was 13 years old. And my dad remarried. Uh, he actually remarried my best friend's auntie. And then she had three kids. So when I grew, I grew up in, uh, yeah in this house in Clayhall and uh, with three brothers, two sisters, and it was absolute chaos. I was actually the oldest. So, um, and I left home at 18 and then went off to university. So like, my child was, pre- was pretty chaotic and a really busy house, but also really sociable as well. There's And like, from a big family, um, I had a big family and then my dad, when he remarried, married into a big family of which my best friend was a part. So there was, our house was massively sociable. There was always people coming and going. I think growing up in a big family definitely lends itself to being really sociable as a person. The first career I really wanted was a lorry driver. And I think I think it was that curiosity thing because actually it was like travel. If I have a lorry driver, I get to drive all over the place, just me at the wheel seeing all these things. Like my dad was an engineer. He still owns a quite a large kind of um, building facilities company that look after kind of electric motors and, and pumps that pump water around buildings and, and and ventilation systems which is every bit as boring as it sounds in my opinion and my dad wanted me to kind of he, he, I was kind of the heir to the throne to take over the business the kind of family business but it never it was never really for me I've always thought of my dad I don't know if he really gets it with me like well I remember when we first played the Hackney Empire and I like I, I think up until we played the Hackney Empire and I invited him and he turned up I don't think he really had a clue what what the podcasting thing I did was. So for those who don't know, the Hackney Empire is iconic, isn't it? It's this huge 
theatre in East London. So I can imagine if you didn't really understand, never mind what a podcast is, but your success in podcasting, suddenly that's a real tangible thing that you could link to your success, right? Yeah, totally. And I think it was... I think we played the Hackney Empire in like 2018 and in 2014 I'd done a first live show of a podcast when I was working on the the West Ham fans podcast and we did a like a, a 200 person event at um, East Ham working men's club with like Frank McAvenny I mean, that my dad I think my dad came to that and then the next thing you know I think he thought that was the scale of this this podcasting thing and then the next thing he's coming to the Hackney Empire so I, I my passions were kind of I love radio when I was a kid like we used to go on uh, trips to Cornwall and I would just be a nerd. I'd be like, well, I'll record a little radio show that we can play in the car on the way down there. So I was always kind of fascinated by radio. And, and it, we like when I grew up in, like, I was born in 83, but like growing up, Radio 1 was a big thing. All those, DJ, all those DJs that are mostly in prison now. <laughs> like, uh, I just was obsessed with Radio 1 and I remember my mum taking me to a Radio 1 road show and like uh, Br- Bruno Brooks and all that and I was like fascinated by it. Like radio stars to me were just was something I really wanted to be. So I think as I got older, like certainly by the time I went to university, I wanted to be involved with radio and I wanted to start, like the idea of sitting in a studio of conveying messages, building an audience. And I love that kind of, was it that, that zoom, that zoom method of broadcasting that Chris Moyles developed so well and Steve Wright and, you know, so many great broadcasters in the past. I kind of, I, I love that idea of being in a gang and like creating, creating pieces of audio and the idea of building a community around, around yeah. that. It's kind of what I wanted to do. Absolutely, because I, I listened to Radio 1 all the time when I was growing up because we're a similar age. And it, for me, it was it was great because it, it sounded so much fun. Yeah, exactly. Like when I think about the great radio moments, I remember like driving to school, my mum would always listen to Capital FM, which is Chris Tarrant in the morning. That was unbelievable. And I remember like rippling the Chris Moyles was on Capital, I think, in the evenings and it rippling through the school. You've got to listen to this guy, Chris Moyles. And then tuning in and going, this guy's unbelievable. And I remember like first hearing about kind of Howard Stern, Howard Stern in the late 90s. I don't even, this is like before the days of YouTube. So I think it was like you would download files and listen on Real Player. I remember that much. Like that's how I would get hold of like Howard Stern stuff. And all those, all those great Radio 1, uh, that, that, that golden age of Radio 1 DJs was, for me, they were the superstars for me. You're right, they were having fun and it was just like, I want to be in that gang. So it's interesting that you made tapes, put it in the car, but I know that you didn't have any family connections to the media. There was no nepotism involved in you kind of climbing the ladder. Was it just purely the fact that you were attracted to creating things that you eventually uh, got to the place where you are now? So I know that you said that you started building websites for for family members and things. Yes, well... When I, when I was in sixth form, the inter- this is like late 90s. So I left sixth form in 2001. I started in 99 and the the internet was really nascent. But I remember hearing from another school that uh, like a website had been made kind of taking the, the piss out of some of the people in that school. And I was like, well, I, I'd like to have a go at that. And so I had a ba- basically a group of mates and I, pr- I made a website as if we were all part of a record label, all individual artists for our own back catalogue. But this website, this is before the days of, friends reunited or even facebook so i would just make a website taking the piss out of my friends uh, and i learned to hand code kind of html so this was before squarespace this oh, was this before, before squarespace. so like, you you were ahead of the game really yeah i think i used a thing called um what was it back then dreamweaver and microsoft front page I, I started on microsoft front page because it was a bit WYSIWYG. like you could edit it a bit and you could see how the html changed 
and there was enough websites that I could figure out what was going on and you could kind of piece together. It, I mean, it was quite rudimentary. It wasn't that uh, crazy. It was just like pictures and like like h1s h2s like yeah just text and images really but at the time i think that's that was quite advanced because i think in terms of the proportion of people who are familiar with that kind of thing i think it's much higher now i would say than back back in the day when you know access to being able to create stuff like that was fairly limited so did you find that you got a lot of good feedback when you did that and you, you wanted to build on it? It made my mates laugh, which is kind of like, that was really what I wanted to do. And it kind of went around the school a little bit. And it, but then it had kind of early on, like this piece of fun that I had, like making a website, quickly turned into, like, I was able to leverage that for financial benefit because my dad saw that I was making websites. But what my dad didn't know is that um, eventually he asked me to make his website. And then what I did is I, I started building more web websites to take the piss out of everyone else in my school on his domain on his hosting services so his business is called pumps and motors so a part of his website would be for pumps and motors but at least 90 percent of that of the, his hosting services would be websites that i was hosting taking the piss out of various people like mates and stuff like that silly websites there'd be like whole sites dedicated to an upcoming lad's holiday and you know just stupid stuff like that so but eventually yeah my dad kind of said well i Oh, he has a small business he needs a website so I made him a small website but then my dad a lot of his friends also owned small businesses and eventually one after the other they came to me saying well 200 300 pound a pop will you make us a website here's here's our catalog will you turn that into a website and so by then I was kind of going into university and actually I was able to accrue quite a lot of money quite early on just by making crap websites again and again like in 2000 2001 what kind of what kind of rates were you charging there yeah so like the average i'd say was probably about 300 pounds and for a lot of those people that bought that's, websites, that's not I mean, bad for <laughs> no for like well, i was 18 at the time that's pretty good money but what i will say about that 300 pounds is like 15 years later i was still getting calls <laughs> like even now even now i'm responsible to some extent for some of those websites i made like i'll get called up about i don't understand this password like like that 300 pounds over 22 years or whatever it's been is like they've they really got their money's worth <laughs> so if you're listening and you still use chris yeah, skull yeah, as a web engineer yeah. then uh, you owe him lots of money so so we all grew up in london but when i was 18 i left home at 18 to go to university but all my family moved up north so so actually when i turned 18 i was uh, i decided to pick the closest university to my house as opposed to going to a university elsewhere in the country because i was like i want to be i want to be in london so with my family it's equivalent of like my family going to university really because they they kind of they kind of went off north but i just got a map out and was like well the university of east london is closest to my house and uh, but i didn't know that <laughs> i was the first person in my family to go to university so i had no idea that a degree at university of east london is worth less than one at oxford i thought it's like GCSEs and A levels. Like if you get if you get those things, they're the same everywhere you go. So it's actually the day before I went to university that I found out it's all about the league table. And I saw that I think University of East London at the time was like the second worst university in the table. And I didn't. And that was the day before I went to university. I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> so let's talk about that. So you left home to go to university, and it's it's, it's quite a unique situation where usually let's just say most people when they go to university the family stay where they are yeah and it's the it's the young kid that goes to university yeah. has the distance this time it was you almost staying in the same region and then it's your whole family moving yeah. so in terms of where you went to next was it just a case of student digs how did you wrap your head around the fact that suddenly your family weren't there anymore 
and you you suddenly find yourself with you know the realization that the league tables mean something were you, was it a crisis of confidence or or what were you thinking at the time i don't know I, I looking back i was probably just really naive about the whole thing the digs i was staying in i don't know if you've ever flown in and out of city airport in london but you can see these weird little circular buildings on the side on the other opposite side of the kind of river that's where I stayed in. So I stayed there for a year. And I think, and you're right, it was really difficult because I didn't have a base. Like, I think when you go to university, you're kind of, you're going over there, you're kind of experimenting, you're learning about yourself and life and lots of other different things, but you've always got the base to come back to, whereas a bit flipped for me. Whereas when it, when it came to the weekends, like the base was like four four hours away and it wasn't really a true base. It was brand new to me. So I don't know, I, I think it, I did learn a lot about myself and I think it gave me a lot of independence but the, but the biggest thing it gave me was really kind of opportunity because there was a big radio studio at the university. And when it came to weekends, I wasn't always going home like a lot of, a lot of other students. So I, I was kind of trapped in there. But I had the keys to the kind of radio studio. Like it was, There was a very small um, radio society there. And I, kind of where I learned how to be in a studio and how to cut podcasts. I cut, we weren't even podcasts then, it was just cut pieces of nonsense together so, yeah so let's talk about that was it something that you locked on to straight away you saw the uh, the university radio station you saw the facilities or was it just something that you you thought ah oh, you, you just clocked and you thought i'll have a go at that i just I, t- I did it totally for the love of it I, th- I found it like going back to what we were saying about the kind of the golden age of radio i guess in the kind of the 80s and 90s like i was absolutely fascinated by radio and the the radio studio in the university was kind of pride of place like, amongst all the different rooms so or the, the lecture room so as you went between lecture rooms you would see it, it was like glass like big glass walls and you could peer in it was so exotic and it, it was really accessible to kind of get onto the radio society which wasn't much of a society at all it was like five people just messing around it was no kind of organization to it and it yeah, I just got just started doing it. So you had a show? Oh yeah, I say show. I mean, no one gave me the show. I had the show. I decided I had the show, and it kind of got piped into the university bar a few times. And I don't think anybody listened. <laughs> well, you, I mean, I tell you, no, I do know that someone did listen once because they can't. Like, I think we were doing like a text in or something like that, and I just gave out my own number, and um, <laughs> people were like scrawling it into the. The people were like engraving it on the tables outside the university, like like for sex caught text this number so i did get like a bunch of dodgy text so there were a bit even if they weren't necessarily enjoying it for nefariously reasons people are obviously paying enough attention to the output what kind of things were you were you playing or was it was it a personality led show or um, um or were you trying to emulate somebody I or remember, was it just uh, fun? i remember i remember i've got a, i've got it on mini this somewhere but like some of the things we were doing like jeremy kyle was on capital fm at the time and he was doing a bit of a like an agony aunt show but it was really proto jeremy kyle so although it was an agony aunt show every kind of call he would have in would inevitably turn to him just having a go at whoever kind of called in so i remember there was a parody of like jeremy kyle there was one feature we had which was like we would just pun on top of the pops every week it'd be like so it'd be like top of the plops and it'd be like the best toilets around the university uh top of the locks like the best locks in the universe it's just like 100% based on puns yeah it's like yeah just 100 it had to be a pun every week and then I had um one of my mates who who I went to university with and now owns a PR company called Thinking Hat PR um Emma Healy she was then she was she she did a little kind of entertainment section that inevitably the wheels would always kind of fall off on but it yeah it was just, it was just a load of nonsense but it was just good it was you know i didn't do it with a view to kind of oh this could be a career i mean i'd, I'd hoped for something like that but it was just really 
having a laugh with friends and it was kind of that's what started with the website and thing like creating pieces of technology on, on the web it was just just having a laugh so you spent three years at, at the university what was um what was your thinking when you when you graduated what did you think in terms of next steps because it's often an afterthought if you're not if you don't specialize in a certain subject and you're kind of thrown to the wolves so to speak when you're you've got the whole world in front of you was tech still a big part of your thinking then considering you were you know, developing websites from an early age i think when i think back to university i don't remember seeing like technology or user experience or any of these things that i don't they, they just weren't a thing so when it came around to like picking a course it wasn't there i actually did i just spent four years at university because i did a year of sociology first and um i did that because i had an auntie who'd done sociology and i thought sociology i thought you needed like an ology and you needed something that was vague enough that you could actually go into lots of different things because i didn't really know what i wanted to do and I did all right. I passed, like, I flew through the, the sociology year, but I came out the back and I was like, oh, I just don't want to do this. Like, I don't want to, this is boring to me. But they did have a course called Communications that I knew some people had done in, within my year kind of thing. And it, I knew it was stuff like, there was an element of web design. There was a bit of audio in there. And it was like, it was various different things to do. It was like a lot of theory around communication and, and kind of global communication, but also like tactical stuff, like, oh, here's a few practical skills. And I was like, I wanted to do that. Because I was really interested in it. And I thought, well, there could be some... It's still a degree and there's some practical implication here. So actually, I swapped after a year and ended up doing three years of, of communications. Did you enjoy that? Yeah, it was definitely... I was like, this is my scene. Yeah. Like, And also, like, there was a heavy element of kind of web design and, uh, and kind of web elements to it. And it was just a walk in the park for me. Because I'd, so I'd done so much on the web and knew how to hand code HTML that when it came round to it, it was just like, I can knock this out in an hour. Cause we're, yeah, because we're talking, what, maybe 2004, five. That was probably 2002. 2002. Three, yeah. So the, the idea of what the web was... Uh, was changing quite significantly back then and also media generally was was quite yeah. different i don't think we were quite there yet in terms of digital taking over traditional analog stuff but it yeah. was definitely well on its way and so i think back then people with some certain skill sets the demand was slowly increasing and, and i think that even now today like people still talk about podcasting like it's a nascent industry and also from like user experience and, and building kind of big websites like these are tools that are really sought after today there's a real kind of like there's a bit of a talent drain like it's hard to get people it's re they're really lucrative careers but even even now yeah there, there isn't a, a massive pool of people people are still saying like we need to get more people into this industry mm -hmm. and so that was 20 years like i was doing that sort of stuff 20 years ago so it's very much right place right time it's just you know and that, i guess that came out of following passions yeah but having said that looking at that you know a lot of this is self-starter stuff do you give yourself credit in terms of looking back and thinking well you know i took it upon myself to to go and after because I, uh, I suppose a lot of people that's the stuff that you don't necessarily see they just see the success at the top do you know, like, one piece of advice I always give to people when, my, with my kind of user experience technology hat on is, like, when people come to me and say, I want to get into the, I want to get into the industry and I've just done a course, but uh, I don't, can't get an opportunity because I don't have a portfolio, I always say to those people, like, there's nothing to stop you doing a piece of work. Like, no, you don't need to be paid for it in order to create a portfolio. And I guess like, I, d I didn't think about it back then, but that's kind of what I was doing. I was, I was having fun, but actually I was building out a bit of a portfolio and that'd be one piece of advice i'd really give to people if they want to get into the into the media but well certainly around kind of user experience because i know it's true but maybe any kind of creative uh, I, actually there's a, a producer who i know who's just gone to the athletic 
who was doing stuff for me on page, just messing around, and now he's got a full-time job out of it. And again, it was kind of like, it was just messing about and having fun, just creating things. You don't need to be paid in order to create, to build up a kind of portfolio of stuff. So for user experience people, like if you want to go in and kind of analyze a website or build something, you can do that. It doesn't, you don't need to be paid to do that. And then that sits on your portfolio. And I guess that's kind of what I was doing back then. But for me, it was just about following a passion. I'm interested in this stuff and therefore I, I will, I just want to play with it. It's not even it's like it's fun for me. Because am I right in thinking that your dad wanted you to follow in his yeah. footsteps? Yeah, he was really few. It's probably the most mad my dad has ever been with me. Like my dad didn't talk to me for a bit. Like um, I remember, so when when I left university, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I remember what I'm, I, there's a few turning points in my career. One of which was like I remember my mate Pete got into sales with EMAP, and he started making a few thousand pounds a month. Then like probably like three or four thousand pounds a month, which we were like 22 fresh out of uni. I was like, wow, this guy's absolutely cream in it because emap um for those who don't know is a yeah. big lo- well it was London magazine publisher i yes. think they might they, they bought by haymarket i don't know they're, they're one of those big kind of publishers they do events and kind of industry b2b magazines all that kind of stuff yeah. and he was working in sales and i thought well i want a bit of that money and i remember going for, i went to I actually had a sales interview and they said what do you want to do and i was like the first thing i said in this sales interview was like i want to do something creative and i went well, this is not your career for you. And thank God they did because, yeah, I did like, I'm definitely, I didn't want to be in sales. But I, but so my, I went back to my dad and I was working at Pumps and Motors again, but I knew I wanted to do something else. And I had enough stuff, I'd, I'd done enough stuff that I was like, I must be able to get a job somewhere. And uh, a job came up in The Guardian for the Treasury. And this is at the in kind of like uh, 2005, so like the Blair Brown years. I went for a job at the Treasury and actually got down to the final two and didn't get it. And I was like, oh, well, maybe I just need to stay at Pumps and Motors. And then two weeks later, the girl who did get it pulled out and they phoned me up and I was like, I'm in. <laughs> and that was a, that was kind of, yeah, that was my big break. And it was it was really, yeah, it was the treasury. I only did it for kind of like yeah, a year and a bit. And it was while we had the EU presidency, which goes around every year. So we also had the G7 presidency. So it was, it was creating a lot of kind of illustrative branding stuff for, for those two organizations but also the, the the treasury itself was going through a rebrand so it's like redoing logos and it was also looking after a bunch of kind of web estate back then there wasn't gov.uk it was like the treasury had its own website and nobody knew what to do with it so it was just kind of so, looking after so this that. is the central government of the uk yes. and you're you're essentially the, the, civil communi- servant. the, the civil servant you're a yeah. communications officer yeah. and your job is to create stuff that literally broadcasts a message yeah. making sure that the message is on point coming out of university did you feel that that was quite a big step to take in terms of you know, obviously you're you're suddenly working for the british government you're 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 seeing the the heads of state almost i i assume every day or if, yeah, if not yeah, all yeah. the time we've seen gordon brown all the time yeah. signing off things how naturally did you did you fit into that especially considering that you realized that point sales wasn't necessarily for you <laughs> I think I've always been quite polite my whole life. And I think in the civil service and especially in the treasury back there, like if you were just polite and nice and helpful and early and all that stuff, like you would just fly through it and smart. But I remember because when I got this job, I was like, wow, I've got a big job in the city. So I remember turning up on my first day in a suit, but the communications team was like jeans and a shirt. Like, and then, and then when I went through the, the like I actually turned up and like my boss was like, I did say, don't, don't bother wearing a suit. But I think so I only wore a suit on my first day. But it was it was such a surreal. It was my first time dealing with really kind of high profile people. Like I think I designed the front cover of the two thousand and five budget or six budget, so it was, it was working intimately with Gordon Brown, 
and you had to kind of the the idea of it was it was like a map of the uk it was a uk map of england and you had to kind of create with photoshop a kind of utopian vision of what the uk actually was so it'd be like because it's the budget it's like get a granny like sat down really warm in her living room and then like like, like and then also segue into like the Notting Hill Carnival, people having a laugh with the police. So it's like, yeah, you had to kind of create this map of the UK, like like using Photoshop, like putting all these images together, and that was the front cover of the budget I, that I designed. I've tried to find a copy of that, but I can't find it anywhere. That's amazing. That must have been. And, and Gordon great had to experience. sign off on that himself, so you had to go into Gordon's office and like, yeah. So in terms of your day to day, you were just working in an office kind of finding your feet in the world of work is that fair to say yeah but it was really exciting because the treasury's office is obviously right in westminster right next to the foreign office and i think backing on to hmrc but it's right it's by big ben it's on parliament square so it's really exciting also because we had the eu presidency and the g7 presidency it was constantly heads of state coming in and the offer the role of chancellor back then when gordon brown was doing it, it was obviously high profile and he wanted to make it especially high profile so you had lots of you had lots of comings and goings and it was really interesting kind of time it'd be often like i'd be walking down the halls and there would be like 20 press like paps waiting for gordon brown to come in because he was having a meeting and they were on like to take pictures so you just see all these flash bulbs going off like that became a kind of regular occurrence welcome back this is something in media i'm dave mcguire so it's 2005 and Chris has been bitten by the radio bug and he's finding his feet working for the UK government as a communications officer. What comes next will catapult Chris into the heady world of television. And so how long were you a communications officer and um, how did your next role come about? So I did that for like kind of 14 months and, I, and one of the friends I went to university with, a guy called Mark Harris, had got a job a company called Mammoth Graphics, which were in, in the in the t- TV industry, essentially like creating broadcast graphics that often went out on kind of live shows, but also quite kind of complex back end systems that would power stuff like uh, rugby sevens, like score calculators. So that those broadcast graphics actually had some software underpinning them for like scoring during a sports game or taking in kind of third party feeds for like the Formula One, for example, like the leaderboards or, or the the kind of um, the lap times. And stuff like that so it was it was uh, it was a job basically right in the heart of tv and it was in 2000 summer of 2006 and the first thing i would have been working on was the world cup and it was for bbc interactive and it was providing kind of graphics and services for um red button stuff for the world cup in 2006 and i remember the interview being at tv center and uh obviously tv center again one of those things growing up were like going live on a saturday morning alive and kicking and it was so iconic, TV Centre, like the idea that I could be going there. And, and, and so I was really excited. And it was one of those things where I had an interview and got offered the job like straight away. And it was like brilliant. Uh, wow, that's, yeah, quite, yeah. that's quite amazing. Yeah, yeah. Just got offered it in, just got offered it in, in the room. TV Centre, in the canteen at TV Centre. And then after that, yeah, just spent five and a half years like really in the heart of TV, a lot of live TV. So worked across like Big Brother. I'm actually, uh, I don't know if I'm still responsible for this, but I definitely did the first iteration of the On Strictly Come Dancing the scores like the you know the, the flipping scores and the kind of picture in picture of the judges then that's actually i don't know here's a here's a little showbiz secret so i actually worked on the software for that all those judges have little paddles down by them like little key keypads with numbers on it and so the, the judges all put in their their scores before they announce so that's why when the judges flip it around it says it on the screen 
because there's a little bit of software there those judges are putting those scores through so it was, it was that's the kind of technology I was that's a really involved. nice little tidbit behind yeah, behind the scenes behind the scenes so you were doing the graphics with some of the biggest tv shows de- certainly in the uk but definitely in the world basically but you were also in charge of i suppose the uh, again it's the communication element of it is yeah. so it must have been there must have been some nice lines from your previous job into this one even though it was slightly different but is, were you actually in, in, designing things yeah, as well graphic design it was it depended sometimes like it was a lot of often what happens on like television shows like Big Brother for example is you get a bit of a kit of parts and you have to kind of reassemble that so there is a there is a large element of kind of graphic design where you're kind of retailing the kind of designs that have been handed to you like the like for example on Big Brother like all the eye dents and things will be done by a kind of a design agency but you might be picking those pieces up and kind of redesigning them for like broadcast use so tell me tell me what it was like to work in that office and how did that compare to working at you know the treasury a, a very I suppose I can only imagine because I've never worked in a government office before but I, I can imagine quite a different atmosphere maybe a different demographic you may be working with yeah. younger people working in television I think the, the the big difference is that the treasury was a nine to five and like television is crazy hours it depends when the show like for example on Big Brother's Big Mouth I think when I worked on that for a few years like you would turn up at kind of 5 p.m and you'd be done at midnight and home at like kind of 1 a.m so the, the the times the times really different and obviously it's just uh, it's not a desk based job so you you kind of you're all you're all over the place like you're working in lots of different kind of environments and you're like in the TV studio one moment in the gallery the next so it's, it's really kind of yeah it was really divergent really interesting kind did of you, we, did you enjoy that difference and working hard long hours you, you mentioned you, you worked at the Formula One yeah. and you went you went around the world is that right and you're yeah. you're working in some of the, the most beautiful places in the world with some of the most famous people in the world obviously it's very very tough and hard work but did you enjoy the, you know that work hard play hard absolutely mentality. I absolutely loved it I'd actually think like over that whole period I worked on BBC Formula One for about 18 months and uh, this was I think looking back it was probably the glory years of BBC Sport it was just coming to an end you know BBC Sport had been such a big thing like Grandstand and Dares and like unbelievable rights to things and and the BBC had the rights to Formula One which I mean they'd never get they're never going to get those back now but at the time it was BBC were flying uh, the whole production crew out to all the Grand Prix all over the world which I think at the time there was like 19 or 20 Grand Prix in the year so we as BBC kind of I was they were mainly BBC staff but we were I was kind of contracted into the team to provide the kind of the broadcast graphics and and some of those digital services and so we were just flown all over the world it would, you'd you'd kind of get you'd turn up at the racetrack on a Wednesday work all week and it'd be intense right up then you'd go off air on the the Sunday night and then it'd be but throughout that because you're going to a different city every week kind of big nights out and there was a real mentality of like let's go out drinking till 2 a.m but there was also a culture of the bus leaves at 8 a.m and if you're not on it it's going to be absolutely hilarious and you've got to make your own way there and everyone's going to look down the nose at you it's like i really love that kind of atmosphere and it was really fun it was a great bunch of guys who all went on who've all gone on to do unbelievable things like producer called tom jen is a really good friend of mine has gone on to create his own kind of production company most famously probably uh, whisper films which is run by david coulthard sunil patel and, and jake humphreys which is just an astronomical success so it was also kind of being around really great talented people working really hard a really great kind of working culture and also but unbelievable experiences too getting to go all over the world was just great because you i heard you said that it's a bit like speed dating in terms of the work environment you know with people coming in and out and having to 
work with people quite closely you've just met and you get yeah it's funny as well it's like you really get I don't know what it's well I've worked on kind of UK based TV shows when you're in the studio you turn up and you kind of deal with talent and then you're gone but when with Formula One it was completely different because like you're flying around the world with the talent you're all one team like you're you're in each other's pockets all the time like one minute you're making TV and the next minute you're making toasted sandwiches with David Coulthard and like <laughs> Which actually did happen, like and making like Martin Rundle, do you want a cup of coffee? Like that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's a really it was a really interesting formative time and learning to kind of learning to deal with talent. But also I think that thing about uh, I spoke to um, James Brown recently who, who edited Loaded and he told he told this story Loaded was a big magazine in the nineties. Uh, younger listeners won't remember that. <laughs> but, um, but James Brown was telling me like he grew up opposite a Leeds United player, like who played for Leeds. And it was kind of that proximity to kind of fame made him realise that absolutely anything was possible. And I probably didn't have that until I was in my mid-twenties. Like, even though I'd kind of dealt with Gordon Brown and, like, it, these kind of, um, like, entertainment dreams or media dreams, the things you wanted to achieve and actually making this more of a career and maybe owning your own thing and, and you know, make, like, going out into business for yourself, that didn't seem real to me until I had those days on Formula One and, and dealing with those kind of personalities and realizing, realizing, oh, they're just people, like, who've done a bunch of stuff. Like, I could, I could do that. Like, Because from an outsider's perspective what you're describing there is is the dream right you know yeah. you're you're in your 20s mid 20s I, I presume you know uh, still got the rest of your life ahead of you etc but you're doing something that if you'd maybe told yourself in your late teenage years maybe the first two years of university that you you were going to be flying around all the f1 sites making cups of tea with with martin brundle david coulthard was it a pinch yourself moment or or did you just get caught up in the work and it's only now you can really reflect on how, how lucky slash mad that work was? I mean, I'm just, just this morning I had a conversation about doing the official West Ham podcast like and being asked to host it, which hopefully by the time this come out, comes out, that will all be public knowledge. But it's funny, like the, the, one of the big things I've learned in my life, and I've heard other people talk about this, is like you don't see the jump. Like that is absolutely mad in isolation. If I, like if someone told me that back in university that I would get that honour, that is absolutely crazy. But net, like things happen so slowly that you don't actually realise how mad things are getting. And I think when I was working on Formula One, like I'd been around Gordon Brown and I'd done like I'd done a few years working on different shows that suddenly when the F1 opportunity came, it didn't it wasn't that mad. But looking back now, and if I really stop and think about some of the amazing experiences I've had, yeah, yeah of course that's absolutely crazy. But at the time, it just oh, it's just another job. Like and then you, you kind of get exposed to all these experiences. And in hindsight, they're really mad. The one thing I'm really glad of, I've heard footballers talk about this, that they, like, one, one piece, there's actually a piece of advice I heard Carlton Cole give a, a younger footballer, which is that keep all the stuff from your career. Like, if there's anything, anything like boots, shirts, moments, like, make sure you've got lots of kind of different memorabilia from your own career when you get to the end of it, because it will, ha it will go so fast and you, you're going to want some things to, to hold on to. And one of the things I've, fortunately did was like i kept all my i would get individual formula one passes for every single grand prix i've did i did and i've still got those in the drawer and i'm so glad i held on to those because now i you know here i am nearly 40 it's like oh, i've actually got a bunch of tangible memories that i could take from from those times that's great but that's such a unique experience that to kind of go through your career did you thrive on that live pressure environment and is that something that you just experienced in that job because it wasn't just formula one was it it was it was lots of different yeah it was lots of different things it was yeah. lots of different things like um and it was high pressure because like obviously you've got a 
it's not quite presenting live television, but you've got to take cues and you've got to create the technology in such a way that it's going to be reliable when it comes to a live TV moment. And I, um, I don't know if you've ever met many TV directors, but they're a prickly bunch. And if, so, and if shit goes They're emotional. Wrong, yeah, they're emotional. There's a great YouTube video that I'd, I'd invite everyone to check out, which is the, the TV director on talkback of like uh, Euro 77, I think it is. Really? I mean, you know which one I'm talking about? Like TV directors are a bit like that. So you can hear on talkback, which is like the internal systems where the TV production team talk to each other and you can hear the director just losing it. Like I've seen that. I've seen, I've seen TV directors absolutely lose their stuff, especially on the big high profile live stuff like Big Brother. Like, so you've, you've got to, yeah, it's really nerve wracking and you've got to create the technology in such a way that you know it's going to be reliable. And if it all goes tits up, like it's on you. Has it gone tits up? Yeah, I've definitely, like I remember when I was working, when I used to work on TV, relying on technology for my job basically. I would remember thinking it must be so much easier to be a TV presenter because it's all on you. Like when when I was working doing doing broadcast graphics, it's like I'm responsible for this piece of technology that is some of the time is absolutely useless. And I remember the, the I remember the worst bollocking I ever got was badminton live badminton the UK Championship badminton in Birmingham. And I remember that this TV director was absolutely terrifying and the, the the broad like it just went down the systems just went down but we also had a one of our responsibilities was like we were doing the counting of like we had spotters with us who would do the counting for like i don't know mistakes made and like so you there's, there's various pieces of data that we've got to be inputting and the system just went down and he's just like shouting at us but oh, oh this is all coming back to me actually the one of the worst ones another one that was bad was um I did the Krypton Factor relaunch that was presented by Ben Shepard. I remember it. And this was actually the hardest job I ever did because there was mental agility games. And so we, some of the things was like they had to, I can't remember, the numbers would fall into a bucket and they would have to calculate the, the amount of the number. And if they got it wrong, they had to remember the new number that they'd got wrong and then more numbers would fall in, they'd have to calculate it. But anyway, there's a lot of variables as a broadcast kind of graphic operator. You've got to have one variation if something goes wrong, another variation if it goes right at each step throughout the game. And you've got the pressure of like, okay, we're filming this moment. This, this is a real contestant. So if you cock it up, they're, they're going to have to go it again. And so anyway, I had the answers. They, they gave their answer and I put it down as wrong. And then someone in production goes, no, whoa, whoa. No, that was right. That was right. That wasn't wrong. And I was like, oh, hang on, what's happened here? And then we basically realized that some of the answers that the production team had written down as the right answers weren't actually the right answers. But the consequences of that were, well, we've just done this game for like three hours. So someone's going to have to go back and check all those old games that we haven't said that they're right when they're wrong. And then also we're going to have to take a pause now to check that these are right. And we've got more contestants coming up right now. And then also like all the technology is kind of baked in. So we're going to have to manually recheck all these numbers to make sure they're right. So there's basically, and this happened to be the day that the ITV big bosses were in the gallery. And I remember the director coming in and saying, (laughs) this is a phrase I, I, I actually, I stolen from this moment. The director came into the studio. We were in like a sealed booth within the gallery and the director just came in, closed the door behind him and said, all right, guys, just take your time, be thorough, and just remember there's a lot of grown-ups in here. <laughs> and, uh, what was going like, through so your head? Was, uh, just, uh, just like pure terror, like this big, but we've booked this studio, like the like the, fee, the amount of money involved in that moment. But fortunately, it wasn't, it wasn't my fault. It, was, it came down to an error from the production team, but we still had loads of checks to do. But the absolute white terror of that, 
really kind of high profile moment. So something happened at Mammoth, you weren't happy about it. There were maybe some promises they didn't keep and maybe you felt anyway that it was time to move on. It's funny because it was, yeah, I kind of, I was making iPhone applications on the side and they didn't like that is basically what happened and I, like in retrospect like even when i've had a tech, huge technology teams here like my, my last agency i worked at had like a team of 40 people and i would actually actively encourage them to do stuff outside of work because i think it's just it's good for the soul and it's good good to have different experiences and different things i think the company can benefit from that anyway they, they didn't see it like that so it's kind of like uh yeah left left under a bit of a cloud like and, and i'm glad i did because i wouldn't have left of my own accord because i was working on formula one i wasn't earning like I think I was probably on at that point like thirty-two thousand pounds a year, like in twenty ten. I don't, I don't know what the see, I don't know where I could have gone really in kind of television broadcast graphics. But the opportunity came up to go start working at digital agencies slash advertising agencies, and the, the first job I was really lucky, and I think it was twenty eleven, twenty twelve was when when I when I left because I actually had a cracking portfolio. I'd done loads of kind of cool stuff. And I had a, I had some good design things in there, and I'd been making mobile applications for. I'd made about three or four at that point, which in 2010 is like there would probably wasn't many people who'd made that many. So I was actually really fortunate to have a few offers, and um, I ended up working at a company in Essex, a digital agency called Burroughs, who were famous for kind of creating CGI for cars and like uh, the big brands they work with are like Ford. Tourism Island, Mazda, McLaren. So it was a real kind of automotive agency and I got exposed to making kind of car configurators and, and really cool pieces of technology for, for those brands. So it was really lucky really because I wouldn't have made that jump. But that jump I made really set the set the tone for the rest of my career right up to this conversation we're having now. Like I was going to say, so um, there's, there's two questions I've, I have for you. One, did you miss the adrenaline of your previous role in live graphics and two um it strikes me that that was a real pivotal moment in your career as you say let's face it it's the people that you met during during that time that would go on to shape your career as it as it is now so is it right that you met your wife yeah i moved into digital agencies which was my more of a nine to five but actually a lot of the relationships i developed in tv are what kind of I developed a kind of dual career really so on the one hand I, I left television and got into digital agencies and was making all kinds of technology for various different brands but I had a, a bunch of kind of television relationships that I, I, that I kind of created like James Longman who's a, a TV producer who's one of my best friends now and he's gone on to become kind of the exec of the Late Late Show with James Corden he lives in Los Angeles now and uh, the two of us were big West Ham fans and I actually after I left television, I bumped into James at a, a crap piece of theatre. I can't even remember where it was. And we got talking about West Ham and how the fact there wasn't any kind of West Ham fan podcast. There, were just, there wasn't any about back then. And I was like, I think there's an opportunity here. And so the two of us started making a, a West Ham-based podcast called Knees Up Mother Brown and actually recorded that just around the corner from here in Soho. And then also, yeah, like the, the, the friends that James and I, James had also friends in television like Josh Widdicombe's wife, Rose, like a worked a little bit with her and we developed this kind of gang gang of us that would always go on holiday like little crew and it's actually because of that crew that we went to the latitude festival in 2014 which is where i met my wife so and you know, obviously became friends with josh and all these kind of relationships that kind of spun out of tv so I, on the one hand i was doing stuff like making podcasts in the evening about west ham initially but in the daytime working for digital agencies working with some of the world's biggest brands on making websites and, and applications while also in the evening kind of doing a bit of podcasting and 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 yeah and the podcast you know and both of 
both fortunately turned out to be quite successful like got a bunch of awards for like making some, some cool stuff for digital agencies but also the podcast went really well this was like 2014 2015 now so the knees and mother brown podcast go kind of got we were getting is it right in thinking you were the only one of the only west ham we were the only one at the time podcasts, there might, yeah. there, if there were others i didn't know about them James Long was good friends with Ben Shepherd, and when we 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 knew a few West Ham footballers, like so, we would start interviewing old West Ham footballers, getting them in the studio here. Ian Bishop, Kenny Brown, like to Steve Jones, I'm sure, like to Marlon Harewood, Dean Ashton, all those kind of folk, and um, we were able to get those on. And what I realised was that we were growing a bit of a West Ham footballer network, becoming friends with these guys. We'd have a drink, and then they would go, "Oh, you should speak to this person." And then soon enough, we'd kind of we actually got the chairman on the podcast, and, and that was a big story because we interviewed the chairman and in that interview he ruled out Charlie Austin because he said his legs were gone which was like a big news story a big news story and, that, and, that, and then we were on the back pages of the paper and also our listing figures were just kind of going through I don't know how many, like looking back I think we were doing like kind of 30 to 40,000 a, a month which isn't loads but it, back then yeah no, but let's rewind a, a little bit because you know when you thought about podcasting why did you choose podcasting what was your setup? Did you have to educate? Did you was it because in learning as you go? Because this is probably another example of you just taking on something quite a new medium, just taking on because you could have written a newsletter, you could have maybe yeah. done a fanzine or something, maybe, you know, whatever. But <laughs> you chose podcasting. What was your thought process behind it? I think I saw with podcasting because obviously I'd I'd spent a bit of time at university radio. I remember writing off the different radio stations. I think I I did this gimmick. Uh, I think I might have even like sent a CD of some of my radio stuff, like to a few radio stations, and I didn't even get a reply. It didn't go anywhere. I thought top of the plops was pretty funny, but I mean, that's <laughs> obviously just me. That didn't go. That like didn't go anywhere. And obviously, I went off and had this career. But I was always still fascinated with audio. And when I saw the emergence of podcasting, Ricky Gervais specifically, I remember that podcast being that was kind of seminal. And I like it was definitely the most listened to podcast in the world. And I think it really kind of introduced podcasting as a kind of genre. And I realised then that podcasting could be a bit of a meritocracy. There was no barrier to entry. If you wanted, to, if you wanted to do a podcast, you could just do one. And so this was yeah back in 2013. But the thing I appreciated was that it probably wasn't. I don't think even social networks were that big a thing. It was probably only Facebook at the time. I don't remember Twitter being that big a thing. But I appreciated there was probably the need for a network to leverage. So we teamed up with the uh, the West Ham fan site Nisa Mother Brown, which was probably the biggest it was the biggest west ham fan site at the time and we said can we make a podcast for you and they were like yeah great so that's how that kind of came about it's clever yeah. yeah and so you what you just hired a studio hired a studio well again there was a lot of luck involved because i was by this point in kind of yeah when we started in 2013 i was working a, a digital agency called reading room just around the corner and the radio room on frith street backed onto radioville just off Dean Street here and Radioville through my outside the window of my desk I could see they had a radio studio so I just went in there one day and I met the Ben Fairman the owner and I said do you think you might lend us your studio like how much would you I actually said to him like how much would you charge us for your studio and he went oh, nothing you can just have it like why don't you take the keys and then it turned out that me and Ben had like mutual friends in common and actually it was a re really kind of fortunate relationship he let us have the studio for nothing well, can I just stop you there I mean that takes some confidence just to walk into a building that you see across the street and just, I mean, no? Did you I feel, don't know. Did you, did you feel I don't brave? Know. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think everyone would do that. Yeah. 
Maybe I, I think yeah I don't know yeah I just went across and asked and, and said that, like and actually you know kudos to Ben because we weren't doing it to make any money we were doing it because we were like oh this could be quite fun we could meet, meet a few West Ham footballers and wouldn't it be great to kind of create this thing like so I just I just took a chance and went went over there but again when we when we started this West Ham podcast it was never done with a view to kind of making it profitable that we had no idea even how to make it profitable I look back now and actually and we we were getting emails from like podcast advertising networks like Acast that I would ignore all the time um so we didn't we never did it with an eye to make any money like we, it was absolutely loss making as a venture but it was really good because it kind of I infiltrated this football broadcasting specifically a kind of network of West Ham players and footballers and I began to generate a bit of a network and also we were fortunate enough the output was quite good because I'd had a background in working on kind of television production and specifically sport production around Formula One had a good idea of how a running order works, how to script and how to put things together. That when we started doing this thing, it wasn't rubbish. It was actually quite had quite high production value. Had some structure. Had some structure. And obviously James' background is television too. So effectively had two like producers on it and we had a good network. And and I already had all the skills because I'd messed around in a in the radio studio when I was at university. So it was one of those things that it just it really came together. It was the right place, right time, right opportunity. Not many people were making podcasts. And, and um, for those who kind of have been to a football match, a game, you know, in the UK, you have a a guy on mic who who's on the pitch. Stadium presenter. Stadium presenter. It's you're my the job title. You're the West Ham stadium presenter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say hype man, but stadium presenter. <laughs> yeah, oh no, that's better. <laughs> it's it's uh, either you know you get the you get the idea. Yeah. Did that was a that a direct result from yeah, that podcast? Yeah, so the West Ham one was really great. We, we we went from 2014 to I think about 2017. Did it for three years, and James then went off to LA to do to work on the uh, the Late Late Show with James Corden. And I, I kind of like, we were like, let's have a big final show. We'll have a send off. We said, did a big kind of final goodbye. And then weirdly, I got contacted by West Ham. And they said, we actually, been, a lot of us listen to it. We think it's really good. We actually are in need of a presenter because we've got all these kind of relationships with sponsors who have player manager nights. We need someone to come up and host this stuff. And you already know all the players. Why don't you come down with like, so I started off hosting within the lounges at the stadium, presenting the old piece of YouTube content. And eventually Kelly Somers was the stadium presenter at London Stadium. She moved on and got the job at the BBC, where obviously now she's smashing it. And I was plucked from the lounges where I've been given this role kind of presenting to, to make it onto the onto the, the stadium. And, Surely yeah. a pinch me moment. Can't believe I'm doing this. As a big West Ham fan as well. But again, it's one of those things where you don't actually have that moment because it's just like, it's a series of incremental gains and you don't actually, it, don't, it wasn't a pinch me moment when I was in the lounges interviewing Jimmy Walker in front of like 150 <laughs> people trying to eat their dinners. <laughs> like, and, may, and I think I, I did it, I did the stadium presenter role for a few times to fill in with for Kelly while she was off doing you know, BBC Sport before she finally left. Like, there was a few times I'd step up and it, it, maybe it was the odd bit. But I remember being kind of a bit overcome. There was a, that was really nervous speaking to sixty six thousand people. Yeah, and it's a big. I mean, it's, it's a, a big. It's, it's not. I mean, you know, I it's you, the biggest you, in London. It's the biggest oh. football stadium in London. But um, in terms of um, so so you had that podcasting success. You told me an anecdote about talking to a record producer or somebody at a record label about people who wanted to become superstars and they had. Oh a good, yeah, so so I've started this business now. Another slice, which I'm sure we've got onto. But one of one of the 
co-founders with me is the former president of Warner Music who has signed the likes of Dua Lipa and Royal Blood and re-signed Liam Gallagher's solo deal so a really big player in the kind of music industry Phil Christie and um, I remember one piece of advice he gave me that I thought was really insightful and probably worth passing on which is that he often gets people approach him and they say I think I've got talent. I want to be signed. Like, listen to my music. What do you think of my music? And his piece of piece of advice is always like, they're looking for a specific type of thing. Like, and actually, you shouldn't want validation. You shouldn't go after kind of the validation of a record deal. You should do it because you enjoy it. And eventually, it'll be, it will become lucrative if it's meant to be. But you, you shouldn't be kind of creating this stuff with an eye to kind of getting signed. It should be whether you enjoy it. Because if you enjoy it it'll eventually turn into something like that. It might be his way of saying no. <laughs> but I think it's a really good piece of advice. Like you shouldn't yeah. be doing this stuff because you want you want it to be, you know, the purest reason you can do things. And I think this is the reason that I do things is that I've got this cool idea in my head. I think it's fun and I'd like to do it. And maybe it'll go somewhere, maybe it won't. And that's the way I've, I've approached every kind of creative endeavour I've had. It hasn't necessarily always been about turning it into into a financial game it's been about i think this could be really fun and i'd like to do it i think i think with businesses and all that kind of thing doing it for the money often is the wrong reason to do things and actually with podcasting that's why it is such a successful medium because actually the more niche a subject is ironically the more popular it can be because people go searching for a certain thing and they find it with people yeah. who are passionate about a certain topic which leads me into the quickly kevin podcast which yes. you started with the aforementioned uh, josh widdicom friend at the time yeah uh, friend at the time and michael marden that's the, the third wheel the producer yeah friend of the time we were actually on holiday in ibiza and this is probably summer 2016 and um, there was a big gang of us, like this big, big friendship group we've got. And, and Josh, I think, had recently, at the time, he'd just finished Fighting Talk. And I think I knew the kind of Knees Up Mother Brown podcast was coming to an end. And I had this idea because I'd spoken to enough kind of West Ham footballers, specifically from the 90s, who were sharing stories that I were like, this, I, I just remember thinking, this is unbelievable. Like, the extent, to, I actually can tell you the footballer, it was Ian Bishop, who used to play for West Ham. And he was telling these stories about like Ludic McCloskey and who'd just come over from Czechoslovakia, couldn't speak a word of English, and just the two of them sat in the bar getting hammered, and like telling these stories. And I thought this is absolutely fascinating. And and what kind of dawned on me was the fact that enough time had passed that these people would tell these stories, and and I couldn't see it at the time that there was a medium for the kind of the questions that fans wanted to ask. Like I remember the television at the time. I don't think it is like now. I, do, I don't know whether this is quickly, Kevin, but there has definitely been a rapture in the way that football broadcasting is done in that they go after these niche subjects. Because me and my, like a, a classic example of this was the first interview we did was for quickly, Kevin, was with Matt Letizio, back then, respected broadcaster, <laughs> sans tinfoil yeah. hat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was a different time. But the, Good times. The, the, thing we, the thing that Josh and I discussed was that we wanted to do an interview that no one else had done. Like, we didn't want to ask Matt Letizia, what, oh, what about that goal you scored at Blackburn or like lobbing Pierce Michael, all that stuff. Like, we didn't want to ask stuff like that. The things we cared about was the minutiae of the interaction with Ali Dyer because that was the things that we were all talking about. Like when I was at university and stuff like that and, and my friends, we would talk about like, how did, what did Ali Dyer do? Like the day he turned up, it was the real kind of intricacies. And I thought when it came round to do an interview with Matt Letizia, it's like, I don't care about your goals. 
tell me about eating two sausage and egg McMuffins. Like, <laughs> tell me about what Ali, what was the look on Ali Dyer's face when he turned up for training? Like, what did, did he know what to do? That kind of So stuff. could you briefly say, uh, talk about the Ali Dyer situation? Right, yeah, so I'll explain who Ali Dyer yeah, is. Sorry, yeah, yeah got, the thing is about this podcast that I do is that it's so incredibly niche that you forget sometimes, like, that <laughs> it's so niche that people won't even know who Ali Dyer is. So Ali Dyer is, um, he claimed, well, someone on his behalf claimed to be the cousin of George Ware. Ali Dyer claimed to be the cousin of George Ware. What actually happened is the manager, the Southampton manager at the time was Graham Souness. And Graham Souness received a call from someone claiming to be George Ware. And George Ware said to him, my cousin is this guy called Ali Dyer. He's unbelievable. You've got to give him a trial. And so Graham Souness flattered that George Ware, Ballonda all winning one of the world's best, world's best footballer probably at the time, would take his time out of his day to call Graham Souness of lowly Premier League Southampton uh, and recommend him his cousin Ali Dyer. Ali Dyer turned up, had a trial, I think he trained for a bit, instantly made the bench. And after 22 minutes, Matt Letizia, Southampton star player, gets injured. And Graham Souness, in a, a, a massive, the biggest role of the dice in Premier League history, takes this guy who's trained for about two hours, Ali Dyer, puts him onto the pitch. And it turns out Ali Dyer's a complete fraud. Like, he's not... He's absolutely useless. It's a, it's a mad story. It's a mad story. But getting that from somebody who wasn't just there at the time and got subbed for this guy, he yeah. was one. He was a superstar himself. This, you're talking about the best league in the world, yeah. even at that time in the 90s. Yeah. Just a mad story that you would never get today. Like, you'd yeah. never... You'd you, never you, with, you could, with the it billions, would never happen again. It would never happen. But your podcast scraped the surface of those stories as you say beyond the guardian articles beyond the match of the day reports you you got the you know the, what i love about that podcast too is the fact that enough time has passed where these they're still superstars you know they're, they're still kind of well a lot of them are well known a lot of them are still in the game aren't they but um they're, they're relaxed enough now to understand see the funny side of it they understand that it was a different era and they're, they're willing to share they're generous aren't they with their stories yeah and I think the other thing that happened was like, so we started in 2017 and we're not football broadcasters. Really, we're not even really in football. And I think what happened is like all the media that was created around football was created by people in the football industry who were afraid to ask what is a bunch of stupid questions. So that when we started doing Quickly Kevin in 2017, I remember when the review the review started first started coming out, they really kind of... We, we were champion for the fact we were asking these stupid questions that we didn't care about the big stuff. We cared about the minutiae. And I think that was the big difference between what we were doing and what existed in the world of kind of football content in 2017. It was that, yeah, there was, because it was such a gated community, there wasn't really a meritocracy. You got into football and you all made the same sort of stuff. That even our title is a reference to a really niche piece of Brian Moore commentary. Like that, I, as far as I was aware of the title, like, I don't really recall anyone ever talking about that piece of commentary. But if you ask any '90s football fan who who watched England versus Argentina in 1998, they will remember Brian Moore turning to his co-commentator Kevin Keegan as David Batty is about to take the final penalty in the penalty shootout and say, "Quickly, Kevin, will he score?" Yes or no? You misremembered that as well, yeah, didn't you? Yeah, it's wrong. And it, but but that's but that, I think that's a great. That's the genius about the podcast as a as a listener myself, is that the fact that those mistakes are all part and parcel of what makes <laughs> yeah it's being a fan great, right? Yeah. Do I remember this right? Type of thing yeah, where you yeah. you revisit certain things where because you didn't live in a digital age, you had shoot and match magazines. Everything was quite yeah. analog. Nothing is recorded 
in perpetuity. So it's yeah. it's more difficult to confirm what went on. Whereas these days, totally. everything is recorded on phones and yeah. And it's actually it's it's the perfect title because it's a nostalgic podcast about fo- football in the nineties. But it, nostalgia is inherently about what you remember of it. And the fact that we remembered the line of commentary that Brian Moore delivers completely wrong. Like he actually says, I think, uh, quickly, Kevin, you know him better than anyone. Do you back him to score? Yes or no? Yeah. And ours is called quickly, Kevin. Will he score? The fact is wrong. And actually, we read a quote recently from Hillary Mantel talking about what at what is history like it's actually just a collection of stories we tell each other that are misremembered and with various different biases built in and actually so, so therefore that our little podcast about nostalgia is is based on all the stories we tell each other and that are, that are misremembered so in a way it's kind of i'm glad we got it wrong in terms of the success then it went to zero to 100 pretty quick you, you talk about it going what fifty thousand downloads in the first uh, well, no week our first two? our first episode got thirty thousand downloads in the week and we are like I think 30,000 in a month was the most we ever did when I was doing the West Ham podcast. I was like, oh, this is good. The other thing to say is when we first launched this podcast, again, we had no monetization built into it. So we just, I think we just used like an RSS feed distributor. It might have even been come out of Squarespace. But there was absolutely, well, but so after week one, we had 30,000 episodes. We were just distributing widely on an RSS feed. The second week, we got 50,000. And I think in the week after that, we got 55,000. And suddenly it was like, whoa, this is really blowing up. That might have been in, I can't remember if that was an episode or the first month, but the numbers were pretty astronomical. And I remember saying to a few friends, uh, like like who were involved with like the 442 forum or a West Ham, like a few football forums. I was like, can you just drop in there? And uh, I remember the reaction to it going, oh my God, this podcast is absolutely amazing. So I knew after a few days, it was really good. And the three of us, like Josh, Michael and I, listening to the first episodes, and obviously we'd all worked in TV and we'd all done stuff. And we were like going, I think this is good. I think this is really good. And um, yeah, it just kind of it blew up. And then you start get we had an email address and then it was like journalists were bringing us, asking us to interview us. And suddenly there was a clamour and we there was kind of advertising networks like ACAST coming to us going, you know, you can earn a lot of money from like advertising on this. And that, so I didn't, the first money I ever made in advertising, in, sorry, in uh, podcasting was probably five years after I started doing it like every week. Let's just move on to another slice. So you're still at West Ham, yeah. uh, stadium announcer. Stadium announcer. Yeah. You're, you're still doing Quickly Kevin, probably one of the most successful podcasts in the world, I would say. Wow. And uh, you're no longer working. No, so I've left the job. So I've now I've, I've opted for this portfolio career. With my, that's my wife's term, portfolio career. But basically, yeah, doing lots of lots of different little things. But the, the biggest thing I'm working on right now is another slice, which is this podcast platform that was really born out of. Well, when you when I got into kind of podcasting, like it was so it's so low-fi. The whole industry kind of runs on RSS feeds. I mean, you say industry. There's probably about 30 people who work in and we just met like the we were the room we were recording in we knew the people who were in it just before us but it's such a small industry but the the, the kind of the technology on infrastructure that sits underneath there is really poor and what i discovered working on quickly kevin was that if you wanted to collect data on your audience or be able to interact with them like for example just drop them an email when you do a new piece of content like not only is none of that stuff kind of automated like it's really data poor you can't really reach out to your audience and it's really kind of lo-fi like it just works on rss feeds and so it's that really limits the the kind of things you can do like whether if you're making premium content like we did with our patron feed like it's it's really hard to kind of distribute that widely on a platform that works for 
both Android and Apple users. It's really hard to get kind of customer data or listener data and interact with listeners as well is really difficult. We were maintaining Patreon and a bunch of other tools. Oh, this is on Quickly Kevin. This is on Quickly Kevin. So we had like a premium version on Patreon. We were running a MailChimp to kind of mailing list that we had to do manually every time we wanted to send an email out. And then there was kind of, uh, we had our RSS feed distributed via an, an advertising network like Acast and had a Squarespace shop and we we're running all these social channels. And it was like, there's got to be a better way of building a community and there's got to be a better way for fans of podcasts. If they want to engage with a show, where does it really exist? So another slice, which is the platform we developed is like, ultimately we want it to be the best possible fan page for a podcast is probably the best way to describe it so that if you want everything from a show if you really love a show and you want to engage with it and you want that creator to be able to reach out to you and tell you about the other cool things they're doing another slice is that basically we're trying to make that the best platform for you to do that so this is another slice.com yes another slice.com we're on all the app stores too at time of the time of us chatting is about nine weeks old but this this to me uh, after having a conversation with you is pulling pretty much your entire yeah. career experience together into one place right it's got yeah. everything it's got ux it's got coding it's got yeah. back-end stuff it's got broadcasting it's got podcasting um it utilizes your contacts within the industry and it also my opinion it reflects your confidence to go out and just do something and uh, understand that if i don't do it who will it has it, yeah. it has a, a hint of that that attitude to it is that fair yeah yeah i guess so yeah this kind of this endeavor really is the kind of the black hole singularity of everything i've been doing in my life is somehow i've accidentally all these things have come together and now this is the most important thing in my life and the time i dedicate the most time to and it's been really interesting kind of going out and pitching and pitching this idea like obviously we had to work we had to get money from investors to make this happen there was a podcast in here that was being recorded and the big boss of that whole production company actually said to me in a meeting a few weeks ago, um, obviously, you, you, like when I was pitching, was pitching to him for kind of investment and he said, well, you, you've, you've got a lot of authority in this area and actually you're really respected and well-known in the industry. And I was like, really? And again, it's one of those things where another one of those moments where you're like, oh, there's another incremental gain. Like I didn't even realise that. But again, I guess it's probably just being part of this industry quite early. And like I say, it's not that many people. And so when it comes around to kind of get in contact, you realise that accidentally you, you kind of know everyone. So in terms of your ambition for another slice, where would you like to see this in five years' time? Are you going after, you know, you, you're obviously successful in a lot of different areas. It could come under the umbrella of media, generally yeah. speaking. Uh, would you like it all in one place? Would you like to take on Patreon? Would you like to, uh, you know, present a TV show? Is there a plan or is it just um, continue along this path of, I'm just going to concentrate and see on, on this on this particular project and, and see, see where it takes me? For another slice, I really hope it's the case that we're still in business in five years. <laughs> That's the kind of the, the, the minimum. Uh, but I also hope, I think one of the things that, that we're trying to do is, I think creators are getting ripped off at the moment. I think when it comes to kind of tools that creators can use i don't think they're they're, they're particularly good uh, I, I think they're quite limiting in terms of what creators can do in terms of engaging with their audience but also and also like selling things to their audience at a fair rate and i think there are a lot of bullies in this industry specifically i would call out apple actually because if you try and sell a subscription on apple they will take 30 percent of your revenue in the first year and also they're they're probably i think the most widely used podcast application but we had a trade event in london in may 
which which may have been the first one the kind of the podcast show and apple despite charging 30 percent from their creators and having the probably the most used podcast app in the uk they didn't even bother to turn up and like be a a voice in the industry and they're not answerable to creators if you've got an issue you can't really argue with them there are lots of other players in this industry but i don't think someone's really speaking out for creators and i hope that what i can do is lend my experience as a creator to creating a platform that will work for creators so Although we're really new, like I say, we're only nine weeks old, my ambition in five years is that we're still in business and creators say about us, we've done well for them. We've helped more creators turn this into a full-time op- occupation. If, if in five years there are more creators who, do th- who are following their passions full-time and another slice has played a role in that, I would declare that like a massive success. But also uh, for listeners as well, I really, really hope in five years' time people just say it's good. If I, if I can get to that place where people are, speak kindly about another slice and the way we've changed the industry and, and given listeners a better experience and given creators more ability to turn this into a profession, then that will be fantastic. I'll be really happy with that. Nice. You can, so that's where your passion that, comes that's from. That's where my, yeah. And also, I'd love to do a history podcast and a bunch of other stuff that, that I've kind of got my eye on. And yeah, I, I, I just hope um, I'm still having a laugh broadly in five years. If I can go to the pub with friends and like not feel like I have the weight of the world on my shoulders and just have a laugh. Because one thing to say about starting a technology startup and specifically creating a product is it's really stressful. And I knew it would be stressful. The thing that, that when I went into this endeavor, I didn't really know what the problems would be. But now I'm confronted with them all and we're slowly working through them and it, ha- it is massively stressful. The th- the, the, I was actually having a conversation with someone who's done a kind of service-based startup where it's like a bit of an agency and speaking to people. And when you're doing service kind of work or you've got a service-based business, if there's a mistake, you can pivot really quickly and you can kind of go, oh, well, we'll talk to people a bit differently or, or we'll, you don't like that person, we'll swap that person for this person. If you're creating a product-based business where there's a platform, oh, you don't like this one thing? Okay, that's going to cost me £30,000 in six months to change. So, like, platform businesses are inherently way more stressful and probably even more stressful than I imagined. So I'm hoping, yeah, to come back to your question, in five years' time, um, I don't feel like uh, the weight of the world's on my shoulder. And we've got a platform that's that's uh, that's working it and people enjoy it. Uh, are you still in East London? Yeah, I'm still in East London. Like, so, um, yeah, so back when I was kind of struggling, like, through F1 and now, I was single, just living, like, with, with some mates and a house share but eventually met my wife in 2014 at the Latitude Festival. Her name's Sophie Skull. She's one of the UK's probably most preeminent uh, theatre producers. She recently won the award at the UK Theatre Awards for Best New Writing for McGarvey and Me. Collected that award from Dame Arlene Phillips. So I'd like to shout out my wife. She's obviously a big part of who I am. And uh, I often say to her, like... I completely understand why people get 50% in divorces because actually she puts a shift in and <laughs> like dealing with me like like she actually said to me like she read me this quote the other day that no woman has ever had it harder than the modern mother and I completely subscribe to that yeah so we met, I met my wife in 2014 we've now got two wonderful children live in East London I'm fortunate enough to have earned enough money in my life that um got a nice house live in a nice area I've got some of the trappings of kind of having a little bit of success in various different things and and but most importantly a really lovely kind of wonderful home life shout out to the wife if you could go back in time and pursue a completely different career do you know what it would be yeah i don't know i often i often daydream about i've talked to josh about this like stand up like whether actually i, I think if, if i'd have 
really gone into certain things josh always tells this story that he had about three bad gigs in a row and uh he was on the way back or getting the train home from one from one gig up north that had gone really badly and he kind of thought sod this but actually he went he did the next gig and it went really well and from there obviously he's now one of the uk's most famous comedians and so i think sometimes should i have given that a go i never really did i also think should I have just kept like, should I have pursued radio? I think maybe would have been good at that. But ultimately, I can have no complaints about where I've ended up because I've sold out the Hackney Empire two times and I've sold out the Lowry in Manchester and I've gone on stage and kind of done, had a laugh with my mates and done a kind of stand up that, like, you know, I guess broadly it's, it's the same kind of beats as stand up maybe. But I, I like, I've, I've kind of fulfilled that dream and I never really got, like, even now, like, I've done absolute radio, rock and roll football. I do that. I feel like I'm the first off the bench from out forward. So I've kind of fulfilled my commercial radio ambitions. I'm really fortunate to have kind of done the things I wanted to do. But the best piece of advice I could I could really give anyone was that no one ever really gave me permission. I actually did those things enough that eventually the, people wanted me to do it in exchange for money. That took a very long time. Can I, can I ask, does your dad now understand podcasting? Funny enough, my dad, um, there was like a family thing recently and my dad gave a speech. And of all the things I've done that he, that he referenced, it was working with Gordon Brown. <laughs> this is recently. This is recently. It's actually like just before last Christmas, like my dad kindly said some, some nice things about me, a family thing. And uh, of all the things I've done, it was working with Gordon Brown 20 years ago. There was the thing that he called out, like, you don't know, not a lot of people know this. But actually, and I was like, of all the things, like when I told my wife, I don't really understand. I don't really understand, but I, I like to think uh, I like to think my dad kind of understands it. Yeah. Chris Scarlett. You can hear him on the mega hit podcast. Quickly, Kevin, will he score? And you can find out more information about his technology venture, Another Slice, at unsurprisingly anotherslice.com. How has Chris carved out such an amazing career? Get further insight from our in-house careers advisor via our website at somethingin.media. You can also gleam a deeper understanding of what it takes to make it in the media absolutely free. Something In Media is a stable production. And if you enjoyed the listen, please follow us by pressing the subscribe button or the follow button or whatever it is these days on your podcast platform of choice. And if you think that someone may benefit by listening to these types of stories, please let them know where to find us.